Last Sunday, Pastor Jared told us about the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Peter was a good example. As Peter was going to the temple, he was with John, and they were going to pray. It was like the first time of the day to pray was around 9 o'clock in the morning. And so, as an example of what God wants to show us, Luke wrote this. He said that Peter was willing to be interrupted. And he reached down and he grasped the beggar's hand and said something really scary to this man. So I have to admit that Peter certainly stepped out in faith. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning before we go any further. So let's begin with the first verse of Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom he laid whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask or beg alms from those who entered the temple. Now this is a model of Herod's palace with the temple sitting in the middle and Solomon's porch surrounds the Gentile courtyard. Beautiful Gate is the entrance into the temple area that's reserved just for Jewish worship. But notice that it says friends or family placed this man strategically at the beautiful gate. This was the entrance to the inner court, the spot that got most of the traffic. And you can see, I found this picture online, by this picture that once inside the gate, it would have been way too crowded and busy for them to even have noticed this man. Verse 3. The man who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked asked for alms. Now, realize this man is a professional beggar. He never looked up at anyone. His head hung down, and he was looking for expensive sandals. And when he saw some, he would wiggle his cup. And the worshipers, they were just as oblivious to him as he was to them. And they may have dropped a coin in that cup, but they wouldn't lock eyes with him either. And that's why Luke has to tell us in verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Well, now, Pastor Jared did talk about this last week. And my first thought in the bulletin, on on the back of the bulletin, is Peter is thinking, we've passed this spot hundreds of times before. Where did he come from? Have you ever been like that? But at this moment, something unique is happening. The Spirit is tapping Peter on the shoulder. Now, our life group, and by the way, there's just two weeks of life group left for this session. We had a lively discussion about this last Monday night. Luke does tell us that this man had been laid daily at the gate of the temple, so perhaps as 
Pastor Jared pointed out last week, even Jesus had also passed him by several times. Jesus certainly could have healed this man. In, in fact, Jesus could have healed every infirmity. Do you ever ask yourself, why didn't Jesus heal everyone? He could have cheered every troubled heart or fixed every broken life. Jesus could have fed every hungry child. He could have stopped every social injustice that took place. He's the creator. He's the source of all human need. Jesus is the fount. He's the wellspring of everything that is good, everything that is pleasant or fair or lovely or decent. Jesus is the creator of all things, as well as life itself. How could he pass these things by? We read in, uh, in John's Gospel and again in Colossians, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. As the creator, Jesus could have fixed it all. He could have righted every wrong before it even started, or at least before it started to go downhill. Well, it's that confounded tree in the midst of the garden. It says in Genesis 3, the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect, copacetic. And then that last tree. Did God create one tree too many? Our second thought in the bulletin, if you want to look at it, is Adam and, Le and Eve, they lived in a paradise until they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the choice was made. And with one bite, innocence crumbled. Crushed by curiosity and pride and suspicion and doubt. In fact, it says on verse 4 of, of this chapter in Genesis... Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, our third point here I want you to think about is, with sin, with this choice of disobedience, with this this doubt and suspicion and pride of what they wanted to have happen. With sin came death and sickness and suffering and worst of all, evil. 
So weren't we created in the image of God? Well, that's what God's Word says. In chapter 1 of Genesis, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And even as I ask this question that I've asked myself many times, I realize I've discovered the very problem that we're looking at. We are created in God's image. God is a God of love. He is a God of purity. We are created with the capacity to love. To love sacrificially and, and to love unconditionally. Each of us can choose to love and worship and obey our Creator. And that's the problem. Our fourth point I want you to look about in the bulletin is love without choice is only infatuation. If Jesus had healed everyone he came across or fed everyone that needed a meal, he could have, out of pure infatuation, caused people to seek him. In fact, we're going to look at that in a minute. Love without choice is only infatuation, and infatuation is based on passion and obsession. It comes from fascination and enchantment not an act of our will, but of our desires and emotions and cravings. We have an example of this with the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd gathers to hear the message of this miracle worker. John chapter 6. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Jesus recognizes the hunger, and being out in the remote countryside, he decides to feed them with a young boy's lunch. We read in verse 9 of this chapter, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. Well, Jesus takes these two fish and fixes enough for everyone to get their fill, 5,000 men and their families are fed with 12 baskets full left over. You, you all know the story. But after the picnic, Jesus disappears only to reappear on the other side of the lake or the Sea of Galilee. We pick up the story at verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. 
This is our next point in the bulletin. These people were infatuated with the idea of a free meal. And Jesus rejected that completely. Jesus came and performed miracles of healing and restoration to demonstrate his power to forgive sins. That's why he came. In fact, very early in his ministry, Jesus healed a paralytic who was lowered down through a hole in the roof by four of his friends. You know that story? It's one of my favorite stories because it reminds me of my son and the loyalty of his friends when he was just a crippled kid. Well, the scribes and Pharisees are shocked by Jesus when he declares to this paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And they yell out to him, Blasphemer! Jesus said to them, Mark 2, verses 8 through 11, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is it easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? Well, I counted the words. It's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you. But what you may, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power. Power to do what? Power to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic. I say to you, arise. Take up your bed and go to your house. That's why I'm healing this man. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth to open a medical clinic or even a fish and chips franchise. Jesus came to forgive sin, my sin, your sin. The Lord can supply our physical needs. He can provide food and finances when we desperately pray for his help. He's done it for me. He can heal us. He can bring back those of us from death's door. I remember in that ambulance hearing what I'd only heard in a TV program before. Stay with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. My heart had stopped. Compressions, electronic shock. It took the epinephrine to shock me back into where I could hear that voice. Stay with me. You see, God can. In fact, God wants us to pray for His intervention in our lives. He wants us to pray for the healing of our loved ones. But that's not why Jesus came to earth. So I have a question for my sixth point on the bulletin here. Do you measure the goodness of God by the cross? 
or by your prosperity or comfort or success. If that's how you think, then your God is way too small. Um, my friend Louise, and I, I warned Louise, I said, Louise, stay awake this morning because I'm going to talk about you and I want you to blush, okay? She said it beautifully in a recent prayer chain email. When you give us things to pray about, Louise puts it on the prayer chain. Here's what she said, and I quote, We know prayer is the ongoing conversation with God, not an occasional monologue. Should we always bring our needs and worries to God? You bet we should. However, as one so aptly put it, we don't treat the Lord like a heavenly vending machine. We've learned to be open and honest with Him. Prayer is so simple. It is acknowledging our dependence upon God. I remember reading, she says, something C.S. Lewis said. He hit the nail on the head when he observed that prayer changes us, not God. So let me agree with you, Louise, even when you preach to me on email. If we're treating God, the creator of the universe, like a glorified vending machine, our God is way too small. And we'll see as we read in Acts chapter 3 this morning that through Peter, God heals this lame beggar, not just to fix his legs or feet or ankles, but in order to point the crowd to Jesus. But make no mistake about it. God can be just as honored and glorified by our sickness and suffering and loss. Because it's really all about God, not about us. On the other side of the sheet that you looked at, um, I have a picture of Bob Vernon with his wife Esther. I was going to put it up here on the, on the screen, but it breaks my heart to see this picture of Bob. So the picture I put up this is a picture that I want to remember. You guys can put that one up now. I've been following Bob Vernon's Caring Bridge account since he had a stroke in 2018. And without a doubt, Bob's family has demonstrated this truth that I'm trying to bring to our hearts and lives this morning. This is a picture of Bob and Esther taken a year ago when she was able to be with him in the hospital. And Esther writes this note. We're grateful for you, dear ones, who are faithful to the Lord in prayer for Bob and our family. We never take this for granted. Though there is suffering in this life, we have eternal life ahead. And the anticipation of meeting our Savior. May you all be blessed and continue to look heavenward where our hope dwells. 
It's been nearly a year since we've been able to physically be with our warrior, Bob. Our desire is to see him. Our desire is great. And our faith in a loving God has grown ever since as we have had to rely on him and him alone to oversee Bob's care. He's with Bob and has never left his side, just as he was with Joseph when he was sold as a slave into Egypt. As the psalmist expressed, God is with us in our darkest valleys. What a comfort and hope. Oh, they want Bob to be healed, but more than that, as a family, they're asking God's will be done. So one of the family members writes this. It was a year ago that Bob was very sick in intensive care, nearly leaving us with a systemic infection. God has indeed preserved his life thus far with purposes far beyond our understanding to be used for his, for God's glory. One area we would ask you to pray about is Bob's ability to speak again. He still has a tracheostomy to deal with, but speech therapy could help him adapt. He communicates with his facial expressions, blinking with his eyes, yes, and not blinking, no. Bob tried to speak to Esther most recently as he mouthed the words, I love you, during a FaceTime call. It would be the greatest gift to hear his voice again. I don't know another man's man who's lying in the bed or sitting in a chair and can't even hold his Bible anymore. Um, so Bob Vernon is one of God's warriors as he lays there alone without a family in a convalescent facility for almost a year. But so is his family. Bob and Esther and family, I want to tell you, you have certainly pointed me to Jesus as I've read your post these past two years. On the bottom of the handout, that's how you can get on the carrying bridge and be praying for Bob and see what's happening. Well, back to Acts 3. So the he, the beggar, he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. He must have shaken his, his cup a little bit. Because Peter says, gold and silver, or silver and gold, I don't have. Well, fortunately, what this man needed was something that money can't buy, the power of the Holy Spirit, his healing. Peter goes on to say, but what I do have I give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Verse 8. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was the man who sat begging. 
begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them on the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And you can see by the slide up here that Solomon's porch was the portico on either side of the gate beautiful. The people are crowding around the scene. They're excited. They're, they're marveling. They're amazed at this spectacle taking place on the porch. Verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Peter pointed to the real source of this miraculous healing power. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Peter takes the attention off of John and himself and puts it right on Jesus. I like how Pastor Sandy Adams says, how refreshing it is for Peter to so quickly disavow any personal responsibility for this miracle. Peter's earlier failures had humbled him. There was now no lingering in the limelight. He and the lame man won't be appearing together on Christian television. There won't be a photo shoot for his ministry's newsletter, and Peter doesn't start a healing ministry. then Peter connects to the historical importance of this healing. And one of the things I want us to see is the importance of the Old Testament in chapter 3 this morning. The value of God's Word given to us in a historical setting. And this is my seventh thing for us to look at. Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere, out of a vacuum. He was the awaited fulfillment of almost 2,000 years of Jewish history. I want us to see all the Old Testament references Peter uses and his mastery of these historical records and accounts. Peter begins to preach. He says in verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter is saying, this is no fluke. All of Israel's history points to this event. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And next, he points to the crowd's own involvement, their guilt and liability. He says, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life. Well, Peter is talking about Jesus as he finishes verse 15, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Peter recognizes the resurrection of Jesus as the proof 
the evidence of their wrongdoing. Jesus was the wrong man to let free. He was and is everything he claimed to be, Peter says. Jesus was a victim of your ignorance and hate. The resurrection proves his innocence, and the resurrection of this Holy One, this Prince of Life, isn't just a rumor. It's not just an urban myth. Peter says, we are witnesses. Number eight on our bulletin. Peter goes on to claim that the name of Jesus by faith is the trigger releasing the healing power, the power that healed this beggar. He says in verse 16, And his name, that's Jesus, through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yet the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter may be the witness of the resurrection, but these same people are witnesses of a miracle too. They've witnessed their own miracle from crawling to leaping, from begging to rejoicing. Peter has made his accusations now in verses 14 and 15. So he softens them up a little bit, starting with verse 17, two different ways. Yet now, brethren, he says in verse 17, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Yes, he's saying, you were guilty, but you were ignorant. You were in the dark, ill-informed, maybe even driven by that mob mentality goaded on by those ignorant leaders. Verse 18, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. You chose to kill the life, the Prince of Life, but God had already ordained and foretold its inevitable occurrence. Now, these references to the Scriptures in verses 14 through 19, as well as the whole book of Acts, belong to the Torah. The Torah is made up of three sections, the prophets, the law, the prophets, and the writings, also called the books of wisdom and poetry. These holy scrolls we call the Old Testament. The suffering Christ that Peter is referring to in verse 18, uh, that would be maybe in uh, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as the lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he, Jesus, opened not his mouth. Pastor Lee and Pastor Jared have been showing us that Peter began quoting from these scriptures. And we'll see throughout the book of Acts that Paul and Peter and Stephen and Luke are quoting from the Old Testament as though they each had their own copy. Now I can understand Paul already has a solid grasp on the Old Testament scriptures. He told us later in one of his letters 
that he was educated and an Old Testament specialist under Gamaliel, the renowned Old Testament scholar of his day. So Paul had been a long-time student of the law. But how did these fishermen, these uneducated men, pull these totally apropos scripture out of the air? As they grew up, these disciples were not exposed to the scriptures any more than any other hard-working layperson would have been in Israel at the time. Alan Millard, who's the professor of Hebrew and ancient Semitic languages, he's at the University of Liverpool, he wrote this. Today, the Bible is widely available in a single volume, easy to use, and often small enough to slip into a pocket. We do not realize what an advantage we have in comparison to the people of the first century. The normal form of the book then was the scroll. This meant that a Jew who owned a Bible in Jesus' time would have had an armful of scrolls. It's unlikely that many individual Jews would own a complete set of the scriptures. But according to Luke chapter 4, a small town like Nazareth had at least a copy of Isaiah in its synagogue. We see this in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Well, Isaiah was one, if not the only one, of the scrolls that the Nazareth synagogue possessed. This copy of this scroll of Isaiah is located in a museum in Jerusalem. It was copied by scribes by hand approximately 200 to 350 years before Christ was born. This is a close-up of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in that museum that they found in clay jars in 1947 found by Bedouin herders in caves near the Dead Sea. This scroll of Isaiah is 24 feet long. I found this picture of it as they lay it out flat. So I might say the disciples may have never read or even held one of these sacred scrolls. You can see how big and bulky they would be. But here they are. Peter and John facing the religious leaders on the steps of the temple, proclaiming the truth entrusted to them by the Savior. It was necessary before Jesus ascended into heaven that he ministered to the disciples to prepare them for this day. Luke tells us in chapter 24 of his gospel that Jesus began preparing the disciples right from the first days after his resurrection. He says in Luke twenty four twenty seven, And beginning at Moses 
and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So after that seashore breakfast we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus took the disciples aside and put them through a concentrated seminary Masters of Theology degree. Luke tells us about this in his introduction to the book of Acts. That Jesus spent 40 days teaching and explaining these Old Testament references to the disciples before he ascended to the Father. Let me read these three verses before I close. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to to the kingdom of God. Jesus spent time getting his disciples ready. They didn't just pull these scriptures out of their hat. Jesus fed them the truth and the biblical Old Testament connections. He poured it into them. So throughout their ministry, starting right here in the opening chapters of Acts, the Holy Spirit could draw out of them all they needed for ministry. And we'll close with this last question on the back, question number nine, on the back of the bulletin. What does this mean for us today? None of us can be effective to minister in the body of Christ or witness to the unsaved world until we spend time in God's Word and on our knees with the Savior. That's my challenge for you this morning. My challenge is get into God's Word. Spend time with Jesus. Recognize that it's not about us. It's about being effective to help each other to help each other grow. Now, we haven't even gotten to Peter's message yet, but that's the same message that he's given each of us, the gospel, to share the love and power of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, We thank you. We thank you for your suffering, for the cross, for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, we're all sinners. So we thank you. We thank you for the things you give us. We, we thank you for the healing and, and, and the strength and the comfort. But most of all, Lord, 
We thank you for being here with us right now by your Spirit to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good to have you here this morning. We've got uh, some elders up here to pray with you. Uh, there'll be a lady in the library for any of you ladies. And we invite you to, uh, to come up and, and pray with us about what the Lord needs to do in your life. God bless you. Have a great day. And don't forget the beans at the fire department. Bye-bye. <laughs>